Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, we'll revel in songs from two of the most influential figures in American popular music. A Nat King Cole Christmas is a song and dance event to be performed tomorrow in the Byers Theater at the Sandy Springs Performing Arts Center. Later this hour, we'll hear from music director Terry Lynn Carrington and vocalist Tony Lindsay about the enduring appeal of Nat King Cole's style. First, there's a story that the great jazz pianist and songwriter Fats Waller was kidnapped at gunpoint by Al Capone's henchmen and forced to perform at a birthday party for the mob boss. Not sure the story is true, but so great were the talent and humor of the popular musician, it's plausible that he could even warm the heart of the most ruthless gangster. Ain't Misbehavin', the Fats Waller musical, is playing now at Georgia Ensemble Theater. S. Renee Clark is the show's director as well as music director. She joins me now via Zoom with pianist and actor Louis Erifo. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. To call this a feel-good musical doesn't begin to capture the spirit of the show. It's such understatement to call it a feel-good musical. It's a feel-sensational musical. Renee, would you give us an overview of Ain't Misbehaving? Ain't Misbehaving was done with Cast of Five on Broadway in the 70s. Not always done as a musical review, but mostly done as a music review. It was interesting in approaching the actors to get started with the designers and everybody. Everybody said, I know what this is. I know how many times they change clothes. I know how many times they change wigs. I know what the songs are supposed to be. And I said, but did you study facts? Did you go back to the source? Let's go back to study him and not disrespecting the Broadway presentation of Ain't Misbehaving, which was ingenious, but let's go back and study Thomas. And there we found something fresh and new, and Fats would have been over 100 years old right now, and his music still lives. So let's find out why and bring that to the stage. And I must say, Lois, we got pretty close. Those five people and that band are amazing. Well, what thought you provided them as well, because he was a serious musician and, like many great artists, started at church and played piano and organ. I always thought, you know, Fats is so known for his personality, his big bubbly personality. I thought that was just a show. I thought that was just his gimmick. You know, Lois, that was really him, like from five years old. That was his personality. 
he was just a showman with his parents. That's the way he got out of trouble with his mother. Anytime he was asked to entertain as a teenager, he just went to that space and it worked for him. Later, you know, it became larger than his musicianship and he really wanted people to respect him as a musician, not just as the showman. But he is just so many beautiful and wonderful stories about him just going into this character to get himself out of trouble or to get himself through the door. Even all of the ad-libs that you find in his recordings, uh, they're all funny, but they're very serious. It's, he mostly ad-libbed when he didn't like the material he was performing and he let it live with the recording. <laughs> so he didn't, he didn't want to be a caricature. He could play the comedian. He was a great comic, but he didn't want to be a cartoon character. He didn't want to just be remembered as that. He really wanted his musicianship to live, and it does. And that was me being a musician. I wanted that to live. So I went out and found one of the baddest jazz musicians in Atlanta <laughs> and said, Lewis, please come and do this show. <laughs> oh, Lewis, I was dying to talk with you about this role. You are fats in this production, as well as the assistant music director and pianist. Would you explain the style of playing that made Fats Waller such an extraordinary pianist? Sure, sure. It was um, quite the challenge because um, during Fats' time, what the pianist would do would be called the stride piano. And what that involves is, is the left hand playing on beats one and three kind of bass notes. And then a leap up into the middle register of, of the piano to play a chord. And that concept is called stride. And, uh, and pretty much everything that he plays at all times has this left hand thing going on, which makes that much more difficult for the right hand to have the freedom to improvise and play melodies while this left hand thing is continuous. Even if there's a bass player and a drummer, this left hand thing is dr the driving force of the music. It really has the feeling to it. That rhythmic support. Yes. You are young. And I wondered in your study, were you aware that Fats Waller perfected this style of stride. I was very much aware of Fats Waller's music, and, uh, but I hadn't studied it as much until receiving the music from Renee to look at. And then I was like, wow, this is pretty difficult. So I had to spend some time with it to try to get it to happen by the time the show, show came around. And uh, it's just as I expected. It's it's wonderful, but challenging at the same time. And a, a jazz musician typically likes the challenge. So it was a good thing to become familiar with. Challenging in his composition or in the score? Stylistically, having to play stride the whole two and a half hours, that was pretty challenging, yes. Well, we must talk about the songs. I'm unabashedly going to start with my favorite. Your feet's too big. <laughs> Take us through it if you would. That's made so many really strong statements. Just studying and studying and studying. When I got to Your Feet's Too Big and speaking with Lawrence Flowers who performs it, I asked Lawrence, I said, Lawrence, this could just as well not be a mean song about a woman's feet being too big. This could be about a person having the dreams are too big, aspirations in life are too big. You're bothering me because you're expecting things of me. Well, there were the four of us, baby, me, your big feet, and you. From your ankles up, I say you show are sweet. <laughs> but from that down, baby, you're just too much feet. Oh, your feet's too big. Feet's too 
because Fats had a lot of problems with his first wife. His first wife could not understand his ambition in the music business. And the more she became upset, the more ambitious he, he got. He, he thought if he could make more money, she would be more happy. And of course, making more money meant that he was away from home more often. And I could just stink. Your feet's too big. You're calling me. You're calling me, asking me to be a father. You're asking me to, to be responsible. You're, that's just too much. And Lawrence got it. He got it. And he was like, I get that. I said, I get, and I can get that I'm saying that to myself, that, that my expectations of myself are also too big. I said, then it's not a mean song. It's a song with a code in it for those that can understand it to understand. Oh, what a take you have on this. Of course, I have to share my personal story with it. Neither of my wonderful children were eager to wake up in the morning, especially when they were around the ages of five and eight. And I started to play a Fats Waller CD. Of course, I queued it up to your feet's too big and blared it one Monday morning, and the two of them woke up giggling so hard that that became their daily alarm wake-up. Little kids were, you know, just thinking about, like, clown shoes or something. But it's, <laughs> I, I will think of it very differently now, Renee. Well, and, you know, the video, if, if you see the Fast Waller video, it is with the guy with the really, what, like, size 15 <laughs> shoe sizes. Fast was a really big guy, and I think he wore size 15. Yeah, he was, like, 285 pounds, six foot something. I mean, the, the size, they always talked about how wide his hands were so that he could reach notes that a normal person couldn't even reach. He was just a big guy. I wonder if he disliked that nickname he took it his family and his mother did not like the name that friends had chosen for him but he was okay with the name oh okay well I'm glad to know that <laughs> now let's talk about ain't misbehaving there's a history here let's talk about ain't misbehaving you know when Anita Farley the producing artistic director of Georgia Ensemble Theater called and for Anita to call and say, I want to do it and I want you to do it. I was thinking, oh my God. And Lois, I think we succeeded and I cannot leave out the beautiful, talented, incredible, my friend, my brother, Thomas Jones. Yes. That I called and said, would you be the choreographer? But really I was calling saying, Tom, would you mentor me? Come and stand by me and, and just be there. And he was there like an incredible. He didn't take over, but he held my hand all the way through it. I just have to give him kudos. Hmm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with music director S. Renee Clark and pianist and actor Louis Erivo about Georgia Ensemble Theater's production of Ain't Misbehavin', the Fats Waller musical. Louis, the song Ain't Misbehavin' really showcases the stride throughout, wouldn't you agree? Uh, yes, most definitely. And it's right off the top, right off the bat. Get a taste of it.
uh, the challenge there was it starts out with Fats playing, and then I come in and take over from where Fats was playing. And that's that's a real heavy weight to have to come right behind Fats to go from Fats to me playing there live on the stage. So Oh, you you <laughs> use archival material. Yes. Uh-oh. Did I give away something? Oh. But we do. But we do. And he does. He comes right in and just takes over. Oh, wow. Talk about a tough act to follow. Right. Or he's passing you the proverbial baton. That's right. Yes. That's what it feels like. I'm just honored to be, you know, dealing with his music here in 2021. It has lived this long, and I just want to carry the torch and share it with the next generation. It's, it's beautiful music, and it's worthy of being shared and, and continued. Honeysuckle Rose, we associate first and foremost with Lena Horn. What makes this song great? Luther Henderson, who was the vocal and music arranger for the original Broadway production, this duet that he created, with Nail and Ken, who are original cast members. It's just gorgeous. Fills with jealousy when they see you out with me. Well, I don't blame them, goodness knows. Honeysuckle Rose. When you're passing by, flowers droop and sigh, and you and I know the reason why. You're much sweeter, goodness knows. Honey, oh, suckle rose. <laughs> Don't buy sugar. You just have what we know from the song originally is just a, it's a ballad. But Luther slows the beginning down to a, a rubato, dirge, just a, a sensual approach to the song. And then when the two start to sing together, this remarkable duet that happens between this man and this woman, it's just, I think anybody that's been in love can they see this journey and they can feel that journey. Well, this joint is jumping. I mean, can you bring down the house any better? Nope, and we let Lewis cut loose. <laughs> yeah, we have fun on that song. It it definitely features me. I get a chance to uh, solo and play all of my jazz stuff in the middle of and towards the end of the piece. But not only myself, but then the the cast starts to scat on that song. So it's it's very interesting, and it showcases all of us. And the tempo, it, it just feels real good. It's upbeat and guaranteed to have you snapping your fingers. scatting. Renee, you're really taking us from stride right into jazz. Absolutely. I just went with the talent in the room. This is one of the most talented five people in Atlanta, Georgia. I just, I, I'm not saying it. They, they are just absolutely amazing. They really are. Jamiria Etienne, Latrice Pace, Melody Fort, Lawrence Flowers, and Fenner Ely. We couldn't have picked five better people. And they bring it, they studied it, they understood it, they brought themselves to the table. Absolutely amazing. 
I didn't realize until prepping for our conversation, he was only 39 when he died. Yep. You know, he did radio. He appeared in two movies. We've talked about how he was a great comedian as well as musician. But I read that toward the end of his too brief life, he wanted to be taken more seriously as a musician. He wrote a London suite. Does any of that serious side appear in a misbehaving, or is that an aside? I think that his music in general walks that line between being a serious musician and being entertainment. And oftentimes, that's that's the best music, in my opinion, is to have that virtuosity or that integrity from an artistic standpoint, but also entertaining. So all, all his music does that. But this music, it does have a couple of pieces that, in my opinion, deal with issues, serious issues, like black and blue is in the story. But I like the fact that that's included in the program and uh, that was that they really bring life to that. And I'm glad that that's in there. Oh, I think that definitely fits serious as a category. On one level, the show serves as a history lesson. Doing so with these dazzling numbers what do theatergoers take away as Waller's greatest contributions? The whole, the whole gamut, Lois. They should take away what a composer he was, what a musician he was. And a lot of times when we see this ain't misbehaving, it is a caricature of a caricature of a caricature. And we really want it to come to deal with the heart of that, to deal with how smart he was, how talented he was, how serious he was. I approached the play as a journey of fats or any person's journey where you start off in a, in a little speakeasy, you're starting off in a small area and you grow. You grow to a point where you might be making money, it might you're in the right place with the right money, but it's not the right time because you still don't have your own voice. And by the time we get to the end of the piece, he has his own voice. They have their own voice. And I felt like that's where Fats, when he was, he died at 39 years old, how tragic. But he did have a part of his life where he called his own shots. He told the record companies what he wanted to perform and what he didn't want to perform. And, and, and that takes a long time in the life of an artist. And I hope that the audience feels this, which anybody, not just a recording artist or a musical artist, or that's anybody in anybody's career, when they've paid the price to say, now I've paid the price to be the boss. I've paid the cost to be the boss. Music director S. Renee Clark and pianist, actor, Louis Erivo. More information about Georgia Ensemble Theater's production of Ain't Misbehavin' is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, the next in our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring street folk artist, Kyle Brooks, you're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Kyle Black Cat Tips Brooks. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I create folk art or street folk art, as I've called it in the past. I'm a painter man, and I do the best I can. Well, most of the time. I just started painting, and then I started painting all the time, and the lady I knew that's now my wife told me I should just try it for six months, so that gave me the confidence to try it. And around that time, I also started putting stuff out in public and on street poles and painting things in corners and on signs and doing some art shows street festivals and I got my first mural with Atlanta Art on the Beltline in 2011 so that got me off to a good start so I just kept working at it and trying all these different things I could think of I'm really inspired by all these questions I have about the world and the way things work and similarities in nature such as the similarity of the way limbs on a tree look compared to the inside of your lungs or the way that a river looks from space or the way that the inside of a tree looks similar to a snowflake or to think about how light from a star left the star hundreds of years before I was even born and got here last night. I think the way those things work and the way colors work together and just the way ideas come and go and how you get ideas and if you don't write them down they're gone but if you think about them and and write them down and start working on them it might change your whole life. Both sides of my family are from the Atlanta area and North Georgia area and most of them are gone now but that's where they were from and I grew up here and didn't have much choice and I kept thinking I wanted to move far away and maybe it shows I'm a weak man in character, but I couldn't get away. I just stayed here. and Now I live on a piece of land not too far from where I grew up. Sometimes I can't believe it. So everything I've done for the most part is somehow inspired by Atlanta or tied to Georgia because I eat the food and I stand on the ground and I drink the water and I'm all a part of it. Well, Atlanta has a lot of new art. I get out a little bit here and there. Public art is very prominent these days. It's very popular in the city, and every new development or office wants to get some art in it or on it. I like a surprise. I like to find something I didn't know was there. I go to the High Museum in the olden days. I used to go there a lot. I would enjoy that very much. You know what I think I do like is little folky funny signs. There's a guy named Trent, T-R-E-N-T, that would write his name. He'd do some hand lettering on windows like barber shops and a hot dog stand. I like this funny out of the way things. But you don't gotta go too far to, to see art in Atlanta, and that, that's a good thing. A couple years ago, I had a big open studio here and people drove down in the yard and parked and and I showed and sold art here. Other places you might see it are on a street pole where I put up my street poems or maybe you find a, a old remnant of a, a bear head someplace or a, a funkity sign I've made. Or maybe you see some art in a business or somebody's home. There was a lady playing piano a couple days ago, a songwriter, and I don't know where or how, but she had one of my painted bears on the wall behind the piano. But for now, just go to blackcattips.com and send me a note. I like a note. Atlanta artist Kyle Brooks and our segment, Speaking of the Arts, 
More information about Brooks's work is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, music director Terry Lynn Carrington and Grammy Award-winning vocalist Tony Lindsay tell us about a Nat King Cole Christmas. You're tuned to WABE at Lab. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. When it comes to popular holiday music, the Nat King Cole Christmas album has been at the top of playlists since it was released 75 years ago. Cole's impeccable voice and smooth sound Render those songs with the promise of joy at this time of year. This weekend, the Byers Theater at City Springs presents a Nat King Cole Christmas, showcasing some of Cole's greatest hits performed by an array of accomplished artists. Terry Lynn Carrington is the music director. She joins me now via Zoom with the Grammy Award-winning vocalist, Tony Lindsay. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Terry, Mel Torme and Robert Wells wrote the famous Christmas song during an unusually hot July in 1945. And Torme, the composer, said writing it gave him hopes that he might cool off in that heat. One year later, Nat King Cole and his trio recorded the song, and it remains a hit to this day. What is it about this song that really brings in the holiday spirit. And um, Tony, please join in to add whatever you think makes it great. I mean, I think it's because it's timeless. Uh, it's written like it's a jazz standard. You know, it was written uh, with some of those classic uh, jazz standard uh, forms and, and chord changes. And just like any other amazing jazz standard, uh, the good ones remain timeless and they're able to be interpreted by people of all generations. And I think that they just struck up on the perfect combination of, of the music and, and the lyric also uh, telling a story that everybody could relate to and you know, being universal. And probably because he wrote it in the summer, he was able to really uh, you know, dream about what he wanted, the kind of vibe he wanted for Christmas, which is, I think, why we all love it so much and it's so universal. Tony? The thing about that song, it, a, a lot of it has to do, of course, with the performer, too, because I, I think Mel Torme recorded that song himself, didn't he? he? He also did, but I believe the first recording was Nat King Cole with his trio. Ah, yeah, and it's that it's that that voice. I mean, it's a, it's so funny. I don't feel like I'm in the Christmas spirit and, and until I hear the Christmas song with Nat King Cole singing it. That's when I start really getting into the Christmas spirit because his his voice is just so velvety and butter, and it just it, I don't know what it is about Nat King Cole's voice. I never get tired of listening to it, and that that's what does it for me every year. Once I hear that song. Then I say, up, oh, Christmas is here. Now, will you be singing it in this show? Yes, and I think it's going to be a combination of all of us singing yeah. singing that song together. Yes, everybody will. Uh, it, it'll be one of our company, so to say, songs helping to close out the evening. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose 
yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows. Terry, can you give us an idea of how the show comes together? It's got a combination of various elements. Sure. There'll be about 50% Christmas material from that, from his repertoire, and also about 50% material from his regular secular repertoire. And uh, there's also an amazing uh, jazz quartet that we'll be playing along with orchestral players so that we're able to capture some of the original, the original essence of, of this music, because he didn't have his trio on the Christmas music other than the Christmas song did, but the rest of it, it was all orchestral. So we're trying to find that balance between orchestral uh, arrangements and jazz arrangements. And then also uh, the vocalists um, are also very soulful. So we're trying to find that balance too. So it's a bit of a potpourri musically. Um, and also there'll be some multimedia elements, some slides and some videos and a little history about Nat King Cole as well. So I think there's something for everybody. Even dancers. Yes. You, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Jared Grimes will be uh, tapping as well as singing. He's an amazing artist that does some of everything, as, as they say, a quad, quadruple uh, threat taps he dances he sings he choreographs and he acts so who provides the commentary and the narrative well everybody in the show will speak so the narrative will be covered by everybody it was written by uh, the producer elizabeth healy and uh, she's written everybody into it so that it's so, so everybody has a piece of Nat's story. Mm. Tony, I read that for 25 years, you were the lead vocalist for Carlos Santana. Yes. How did you first yeah. get involved with Santana? To cut the, the story kind of short, I did an audition uh, recommended by, by Chester Thompson, who was the uh, keyboard player at the time with Santana. I went in and did an audition. And it was funny too because I had to do a a recording session with with Narda Michael Walden that same day. And fortunately for me, uh, Narda's studio and office was only like three blocks away from Santana's studio and office. So <laughs> I was able to go over there and do the audition and go back go to Narda's and and, and do the recording sessions. And I had no idea that I that I got the Santana gig because uh, we only did three songs and Carlos said, oh, you know, that's all I need to hear. So I left thinking that, uh, yeah, well, maybe they didn't like me. And when I got home that evening, there were a ton of messages on my phone to give the office a call because he liked me and wanted me to do the gig. And that was it. That was back in 1990 when I did that. Oh my goodness. That was quite a gig to get. And I'm wondering, do you channel that smoothness of Nat King Cole's sound, what you described as the velvety and the buttery sound, the warmth of his tone as you perform these I, songs. I definitely try to channel that. Yeah, because that's just when his voice is what makes, makes the songs as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's definitely great writing, great production and everything, but just hearing his voice on top of that stuff is pretty amazing. Wow. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with music director Terry Lynn Carrington and Grammy Award-winning vocalist Tony Lindsay about a Nat King Cole Christmas playing tomorrow in the Byers Theater at Sandy Springs Performing Arts Center. I mentioned to you that we did a centennial celebration for Nat King Cole in 2019. 
marking the 100th anniversary of his birth. And we have a resident jazz expert, a man who hosts a show called Jazz Classics, along with a blues classic show on her station. His name is H. Johnson. And when I spoke with H about what makes Nat such an extraordinary singer, H's response was he could just as easily coax a tear as a smile. This could be for both you and Terry. What are your thoughts about Nat King Cole's versatility and impact? I'll go first. I feel that he had a way of singing the melody uh, without, you know, so many ad libs and without, you know, moving it so drastically away from what was written, but, you know, really capturing the essence of the composer, but he also had such a style of his own in his own sound that he didn't have to do a lot. He didn't, he could just naturally sing. It was like talking. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very Extraordinary E is even more than anyone that you adore can love is all that I can give to you. Love is more than just a game for two. Two in love can make it. Take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and you. So I think um, he touched the human spirit because it was um, not so affected, if that makes sense. And his sound uh, and his just interpretation, which also means rhythmic interpretation, was so beautiful. And because he played piano, he could have made a career just as a pianist. In fact, I know a lot of older jazz musicians uh, that were around during that time with him that have told me that they were disappointed once he started singing because they felt like they lost him as a oh. pianist because he was so good. Yeah, he was so good as a pianist that uh, they were, you know, not not supportive of him singing. The same thing with George Benson. A lot of people felt that way when he started singing. But I think Nat's ability to interpret melody also came from his great piano playing. Yeah. In fact, he started singing just because someone asked him to while he was playing. Um, I think it was Sweet Lorraine. Someone in the club said, that's such a great tune. Could you sing it? And the rest is history. Now I've just found joy. I'm as happy as a baby boy. With another brand new choo-choo joy. When I met my sweet Lorraine, Lorraine, Lorraine. She's got a pair of eyes that are brighter than the summer skies. When you see them, you realize why I love my sweet Lorraine. But imagine what we would have lost if he hadn't gone on with his singing career. Terry, it's interesting to hear you say that about some older jazz purists who were sorry that he didn't focus just on the jazz trio after his singing career took off. Yeah, I think, you know, that's just them being selfish and <laughs> wanting to play with him. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Terry said it all. She said it all with that. You know, and one story that I remember uh, uh, reading, and I forgot where it was. Uh, I might have been watching some program or whatever, and they were they were talking about Frank Sinatra, and Frank Sinatra said that he used to when they were playing in the clubs in New York, he used to make his band go with him over to see Nat King Cole every night. <laughs> the the entire band, because that guy was so he was so good, it was just it, it was ridiculous. Well, I think that speaks volumes. If Blue Eyes himself looked to Nat King Cole for inspiration and as a model of perfection. I mean, it's it, the rest is American musical history. Is there anything you would like to add about this holiday show? Well, I would like to say uh, that people don't often speak enough about um, Nat's commitment to civil rights and him being in a time period where it was very difficult for Black artists to be as successful as he was and on their own terms. And uh, he was the first to have the TV show, uh, a variety show on television, the first Black person. And unfortunately, it didn't last. But the fact that he did it, you know, gave everybody hope that we could do that. And I think it really probably took uh, almost until Arsenio Hall did it again in, in 89 uh, for us to see that again. But he was a trailblazer uh, in more ways than one. So I just wanted to add that. That's very meaningful. And I'm glad she did. I have to ask if there are other non-holiday favorites or what is your other non-holiday favorite included in the performance in Atlanta? Non-holiday. Um, well, Nature Boy is one of my favorites. This he said to me. The greatest thing. confession. I still use a CD player in my car. And Me too. <laughs> I, I don't know how many times I have played it. But at this very moment, Nat King Cole's greatest hits is inside of my car CD player. And I agree with you. With <laughs> each, I think there are 27 tracks. And with each one, I think, wow. okay, that's my favorite. Oh, wait, love, L-O-V? No, that's mine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Again. Uh, I have to say I like Straighten Up and Fly Right as well. Oh, yes. Route 66. Route 66. Okay. We're getting carried away. But I think this, <laughs> this goes back to, you know, what, what they tell parents. Don't play favorites among your children. Teachers shouldn't have pets. 
how can you possibly name one Nat King Cole favorite? Exactly. Yeah, they're Can all it? classics. Tony, Terry, thank you both again. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Music director Terry Lynn Carrington and Grammy Award-winning vocalist Tony Lindsay, A Nat King Cole Christmas will be performed tomorrow in the Byers Theater of the Sandy Springs Performing Arts Center. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., the acclaimed author Gary Steingart tells us about his new novel, Our Country Friends. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.